Digital revolution came to stay. Smart ones are taking advantages and understanding challenges. I'm convinced that no regulation is better than bad regulation. I'm more optimistic now because finally EU has understood that we lost the first battle on private data to big platforms to the United States. Uh, I'm a very strong supporter of transatlantic ties in every sphere. We're natural partners. It's in the European DNA and in the US DNA to cooperate. Yes, we are competitors, like we always are with good neighbors, but it's a positive competition. Marina Kalyurand is a member of the European Parliament, where her interests lie with cybersecurity, the Digital Services Act, ethical frameworks for AI robotics and their development. She served as Estonian Foreign Minister and Ambassador to several countries, including Russia during the cyber attack on Estonia in 2007, and to the United States during the 2013 Snowden leak of highly classified information from the NSA. She has worked with the United Nations many times as an expert, as well as a member of the high-level panel on digital cooperation. What are the most important or interesting questions that you would like to be asked? Uh, I thought about it and uh, I decided to end up with asking how come an Eastern European grandmother is dealing with cybersecurity who does not have any IT education who does not know how to program, and still she has been dealing with cybersecurity since 2007. Because I think that question and the answer I'm happy to provide will break uh, several stereotypes. Okay, and why do you think you are dealing with cybersecurity? <laughs> so that's one of the stereotypes that I'm trying to trying to break uh, during my uh, my recent years with cybersecurity is that. For years, cybersecurity was a topic for IT geeks. We normal people didn't even understand what they were talking about. They were, they were speaking their own language. They were speaking between themselves, for themselves. And we were just somewhere, for them, we were geeks who did not understand what they were doing. And I would argue that maybe some five, six years ago, it changed. When IT people understood that they can't be successful with online services, with cybersecurity, if they do not start speaking the language that we, normal people, understand. And then when they start reaching out to normal people who do use the devices on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, every day, once you push the button, you're online, you're in cyber, and cyber is part of our new normal life. And cybersecurity has very different approaches. So I'm a lawyer by education. I've been a diplomat for the longest time in my, in my career. And I think that I can bring to cybersecurity understanding of applicability of international law to cyber, relations between different states and other stakeholders, way of cooperation, way of coordination. And the same way, I would argue, each and every person can bring something to cybersecurity. Whatever the background is, how, how, oh, whatever, it's not important how old that person is because cyber is part of our life and starting with, I don't know, elementary cyber hygiene, like brushing teeth in the morning, we are all part of cybersecurity. And that's why a grandmother from Eastern Europe can deal with cybersecurity on international arena. Estonia is a remarkable country in Europe in terms of its whole approach to, to digitalization and e-governance and e-taxation, e-voting and thousands of other services. First of all, yes, I come from Estonia and uh, uh, Estonia is known, I hope that Estonia is known for Skype, Estonia is known for reforms and Estonia is known for digitalization. You mentioned some of the online services we're providing, but in principle, we have enjoyed this e-life 
lifestyle now for almost 30 years. So it's a long period of time, which means that we have enough experience to say that, yes, it can change your life. It can change your life in all spheres, politics, economy, civil society, human rights, all spheres. It can make your life more comfortable, but you have to take into account the new risks. So nobody has so far proved that online services are less secure than offline. Estonia is the only country in the world which, which gives its citizens and residents the right to participate in online voting. And when I say online voting, it's not sending faxes to different numbers and printing out documents. Everything's done in internet. Yes, it has risks, but we have the same risks in offline voting. When you go to the booths, where the votes are being uh, counted not in the right way, when not all people get access to voting. So there are risks. And what we, to try to say, what we try to say is that digital revolution came to stay. Smart ones are taking advantages and understanding challenges. But we should not turn back to the 19th century pencil and paper. On the EU level, the understanding is very different. For example, uh, even if uh, one, of, one of the first things for uh, online services to work is digital ID. The same way as we are identified in real life when we go to banks or uh, institutions, we have to be also identified uh, when we do some online, take advantage of online services. But try to tell, I don't know, Germans or Americans or anybody else digital ID. The first reaction is no, 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 no. Government is going to spy on us. Government needs our digital ID to identify and spy on us. And people often don't think that we are giving out so much information to private sector. And not, not, so we should not be afraid of the big brother government spying on us. We should consider very carefully what we are giving voluntarily out to the smaller sisters, private companies. So to change the thinking in Europe, it's crucial. Do you think COVID is changing that? Because now there's so many applications that the government is issuing to map and, and map COVID. Do you think it's changing the trust issues? I, I don't have an answer. I know that COVID has accelerated and put the topic high on political agenda. Everybody's talking about digitalization, about online services. We are working, we are work, working remotely. We are Zooming all the time. So yes, it has put the digital questions high on, on political agenda, but whether people will be ready to, to do digital IDs and to trust more governments, I do not have the answer yet. I think we'll, we, we should not rush into, uh, into the conclusions. Let's see how gov governments will handle the crisis. Let's see, for example, how we're going to agree on digital vaccination passports. These are just the first steps. And from there, we can go to bigger questions. Okay. What can Europe do better as not to lose brilliant ideas that companies like Skype and Booking.com bring to America to commercialize? So there's so much intelligence in the EU and so many innovations, but they commercialize in the United States for various reasons. Can you see this changing, like policy in the, at the EU level, changing to accommodate ideas and bringing more investment into R&D? Mm, of course, there's, there's never enough money. Of course, there's no, we need more and more money. And we're discussing, for example, in Estonia at the moment, yes, we have a commitment of the government of 
1% of GDP allocated to research and development and science. But for example, the, the financing coming from private sector is not satisfactory, which means that we have to explain much more to the private sector that they should also finance innovation and technology, and they have to see the benefits they're going to get from that. So yes, uh, innovation needs more financing. I, I think that what European Commission is proposing with the digital agenda is very good. But my question is the same. Do we have enough resources? Do we have enough resources to follow the digital agenda? Ambitions are high, but I do not see that the financing is always there. So yes, financing is an important question, both from government and from private sector side. The European Research Council is pushing countries uh, to that it should be at least 3% of their GDP going to research and innovation. And I think it's only about, I think it's maybe only three or four countries that have three or more percent. Um, I think one of them even has 8%. And I, I agree 100% with you. And, and it's very embarrassing for me that my government agreed just to 1%. And it took years before government came up with this commitment. We're NATO allies. We are contributing 2% GDP to defense. And we can't agree on 1% for science and technology research and development. So on one side, I'm happy that finally we have the 1%, but it's really embarrassing that it took so much time and it's only 1%. What do you think would convince, for example, the Estonian governments? What are the arguments that they should not overlook that it should be more than 1%? It's the question of political priorities. It's also always the question of political priorities. And that's that. So far, we've been pretty good with innovation. We are pretty good with startups, but we also see that at some point the startups, they leave Estonia and they leave Europe. They go to Silicon Valley because Europe loves to overregulate. So maybe we should also look into how to provide regulated, but not overregulated environment to entrepreneurs, to startups and to businesses. So that I understand Estonia is a small country and at some, at some point uh, startups need bigger markets and they have to move to the EU. But I'd like them to go to, I don't know, to Berlin. I'd like them to go to, to, to Riga. I don't want them to go to Silicon Valley. And that's something where Europe has to look into the mirror very seriously. There's a lot of arguments, obviously, around GDPR and the Digital Service Act, and, and generally Europe having the reputation of starting with regulation, while America and China, they start with experimentation and innovation and, and um, financing it. I mean, this is a stupid and big question, but is there a middle ground that you see Europe realistically might arrive at in the next five years that would allow some development not necessarily just in, um, you know, using AI and general joining the AI race, which we're not even part of. It's just it's just China and, and the USA. Do you see a realistic pathway towards a middle ground? Uh, I would say that today I'm more optimistic than I was a couple of years ago. But I'll start with GDPR. You mentioned GDPR, and I would argue that that has been an excellent example of how European ideas go go global. Because there was lots of criticism coming from the United States, from the Silicon Valley. But in the end, the same Silicon Valley was asking U.S. federal government to introduce the same, uh, same kind of norms. So, yes, I do think that with Digital Services Act, with uh, cybersecurity certification, 
EU can introduce rules and regulations that will go global. Because anyway, if somebody wants to do business with, uh, with Europe and with our data, personal data, business data, they have to take into account and they have to follow European rules, laws and regulations. But once again, I, I'm convinced that no regulation is better than bad regulation and less regulation is better than more regulation. So let's see with the digital uh, regulations and laws being discussed at the moment and with the digital reform proposed by the Commission, how we will be able to find the right balance. But as I said, I, I'm more optimistic now because finally EU has understood that we lost the first battle on uh, private data to big platforms, to the United States, to others. So let's be now more smart with business data and let's look how we can use it to the advantage of our people. But the important thing is also to protect the fundamental right, because fundamental rights, that's the cornerstone of the EU, and that has to be at basis of all the negotiations. So, for example, uh, one of the very critical questions is the same exchange of data with the United States, exchange of personal data with the United States, where at the moment we do not have good solutions. After the European Court of Justice has said that a couple of former ways of exchange of data are uh, unlawful. So yes, it brings along many questions, not only within the EU, but also how we cooperate and how we exchange data with our partners abroad, third countries. There's so many really interesting topics uh, about this. Also the transatlantic effort. This is another avenue where, where Gary, where we have a lot of debates on. For example, in terms of sharing data, well, one of our international advisory board members is uh, Robert Jan Smits who was the director general of uh, research and innovation at the European Commission. He was the key architect of Horizon 2020 and of ERC. And he's a big advocator for Europe staying in Europe and not a more transatlantic collaboration. Uh, and he's big on open, uh, open data, open science and sharing know-how and sharing, sharing information. And we are kind of on the verge of being more, well, we can't do it without America. We, it's, just not, it's just not possible not to approach it in a transatlantic fashion, whether it's because of NATO, whether it's because of their know-how and their ability to hype up our progress in this, in this mission. What do you think? Uh, I'm a very strong supporter of transatlantic ties in every sphere, security, cybersecurity, economy. We're natural partners. It's in the European DNA and in the US DNA to cooperate. And I think that together, yes, we are competitors. Well, competitors like we always are with good neighbors, but it's a positive competition. So I think that together we can be much stronger facing the new challenges, for example, coming from China. I know that we have questions that we have to decide. I know the same taxation of platforms, for example, which will be digital taxation which will be a difficult question for the uh, Joe Biden administration coming in, which will be on the table of the Joe Biden administration. We have trade wars, we have tariff wars with the United States. I don't like them. So I, I understand that we're competitors. On some questions, we have different views, but I am a strong believer in transatlantic ties. But I come from Estonia. That's my background. And maybe that, that's the reason, because being coming from a small nation, we understand the importance of cooperation and we understand the importance of close ties with, uh, with everybody who shares our understanding of the world, who shares our understanding of the democracy, 
rule of law, and so on. I understand it sounds like slogans, but it's a reality. My country will survive independent only if we are together with others who, who share the same understanding values. So let's cooperate. And that's why I'm looking really with high hopes to the Joe Biden administration. And on a personal note, I was US ambassador. I was Estonian ambassador to the United States during Barack Obama's last, uh, last uh, second term when Joe Biden was vice president. I had the privilege of meeting him meeting Blinken meeting, Newland meeting, all those people who are coming now in. And I know that they share the same understanding. And I also know that they will be paying more attention to digital cooperation and cybersecurity. Because for years, US was out in international conversations. US was sitting at the table, but not taking leading role. And sometimes we need that US takes the leading role. So I'm a very, I'm a very strong supporter of transatlantic ties. Yeah, we were actually, we recorded a, a podcast last two weeks ago with uh, Jovan Kurbalia, who was also on the on the oh. UN panel. And he was saying that the, the progression of the presidential administration, US pre presidential administration's approach to tech, you know, has been so erratic because at the beginning of uh, Obama's administration, he went to Silicon Valley and he invited all the big tech giants uh, to a meeting and they all sat together at dinner. And then just before the end of his administration, he went to Silicon Valley. He didn't invite any of these and he had a much more skeptical approach to technology, whereas Trump, you know, and his whole relationship to technology, especially uh, big tech owners of social media is, again, erratic. And um, his whole approach to net neutrality. What do you think? I mean, the inauguration, as we're recording this, it's it's happening today. How do you think it's going to change in terms of policy and in terms of collaboration with Europe now with Biden? There are high hopes. And today in the morning, we had a plenary discussion in the European Parliament about transatlantic ties. And almost all political groups were very supportive of the incoming presidency. And mainly because... We will have relations that will be predictable, where we will be trusted, and we will have respect toward, towards each other. And I think that maybe predictability is also a key word. We don't have to wake up in the morning and see what tweets have been sent out at night and uh, how they will influence the, the, the future of different relations and different questions. We know our partners, we know our, uh, our allies, even if we don't agree, we disagree within family. These disagreements are not ideological. Ideologically, we are on the same side with uh, Joe Biden's administration. But as I said, yes, we might have different approaches, different questions where we have to disagree. So again, coming from Estonia, we disagree also on many questions with Russia, but we are also ideologically on different sides. So I do not see that, for example, with Russia, we can agree on so many questions. With the United States, we might also disagree on some matters, but ideologically, we, are, we have the same DNA. Speaking of politics, before you talked about the need for politicians to jo join the digital debate, if only to make them feel more comfortable in the topic. And you said that at some point, new pieces of international law might be needed. Until then, political norms will have to do. Do you see this changing because of a new hype around technology or because we're actually getting to a point where politics is meeting with technology on multiple fronts? Uh, it's a good question. And again, uh, there are different layers and different levels. When we talk about international law, 
then we mainly talk about treaties, conventions. We talk about the United Nations. I've been working with the United Nations for years. And the ideological division I mentioned is very deep there. So I do not, I'm not naive. I understand that in the United Nations, we will not be able to agree on any new pieces of law concerning technology. Because ideologically, like-minded countries see the benefits of the use of ICTs to the society, human rights, economy, everything. While countries like China, Russia, see that uh, ICT is being used for interference into their domestic affairs and brainwashing their citizens. So the division is there. I do not see a way that we can agree. We'll be drafting for 40 years another convention and in the end we will be still stuck with Article 1 definitions. That's why we have to look into what we have today. Yes, majority of international law was written before IT revolution, but still there are principles, humanitarian law principles. There, there is UN Charter that should apply also to uh, digital cyber, to online world. And if at some point we see that there are some pieces uh, missing, yes, I do not exclude that we should or might amend or might think about new pieces. But before drafting new pieces, we should look into what we have and start applying what we have. So far, I do not see much of application. Yes, we come together and we all say international law applies to cyber. We all say it in the United Nations, but we understand it differently. So, for example, when I was in the group of governmental experts on cybersecurity in 2016, we could not agree with Russia and China to repeat that, for example, UN Charter Article 51, the article which regulates the inherent right of self-defense, also applies to cyber. It applies to real world, but we are not ready to say it applies to cyber. And that's not okay. So in the United Nations, United Nations has a central role. And I think United Nations is crucial for capacity building, confidence building, uh, education, awareness raising. But if we want to see concrete actions and commitment, it will happen on a regional level. And when I say regional level, I mean regional cooperation like we have EU and NATO. So in EU and NATO, we can much more easily agree and we can agree on applicability of international law. We can agree on, on deterrence. We can agree on uh, rules that have to be applied and countermeasures that have to be applied if rules are being violated. So we can agree on attribution and we've seen the cases of collective attribution. These concrete steps with cybersecurity have to be taken on a regional level, I think. But we should not be closed. We should be open to everybody who shares our values. Everybody who says international law applies to cyber, everybody who agrees with our political uh, understanding of cybersecurity. The UN Panel on Digital Cooperation and the subsequent report of the Secretary General for a Digital Roadmap, would you say that the UN is the UN is the organization to have a leading voice on this? Because when we, we were speaking to Jovan, another fellow panel member, he said, who else do we have? He didn't say that the UN was, a, was specifically a good platform for, for digital questions, for AI, for technology, but he said, we don't really have anyone else. And now there's also this great um, effort, uh, UNESCO is, is leading in terms of ethics in AI, basically a, a guidebook of ethics in AI. 
uh, OECD has uh, has drafted the principles of uh, ethical principles of AI. I'll have to look that up because there is also a UNESCO one, a development of a, a global normative instrument of ethics in AI. And uh, but uh, I, but 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 if if I have to compare different organizations, then I would argue that um, OECD maybe and uh, OECD's documents yeah. are more widely recognized. Yes, Although and OECD I, is a close club, but still. I would say it's also a, a more appropriate platform than the United Nations uh, for these kind of issues. Coming to the United Nations, it's again what we want. Uh, the high-level panel uh, was uh, the first of its kind. For the first time, United Nations Secretary General took leadership on the topic because we have all the different aspects of digital cooperation, education, development cooperation, cybersecurity. There are different aspects. And we were working in separate silos. They did not talk to each other. There was, in, there was not enough cooperation and not enough coordination. So Secretary General took the first step. He convened the panel and asked us to look into how the work should, could be done better. If I look at the report, then, of course, the, the panel met face-to-face just a couple of times. And you can't expect, after those a couple of times, to have a report which is uh, adopted and accepted by all the members of the panel. So I can't say that everything's written there. Uh, I think it's very important or I agree to everything. But two very important things, what the panel concluded was the importance of multi-stakeholderism and uh, multinationalism. So it is the importance of cooperating all globally and cooperating with different actors. Yes, I, I also have to say that I, I am sometimes critical towards the United Nations. I think that the UN Security Council is still stuck in 1945. It does not reflect today's international affairs. So, yes, there are minuses and there is criticism towards it. But that's the only thing we have today, where all nations come together, they can be in the same room, even if they don't agree. What I was referring to happened in the first committee of the United Nations, GG, Group of Governmental Experts Discussions. And there the ideological division was uh, existed. But even there, we could discuss new challenges. We could discuss confidence building measures. We could discuss capacity building. We could discuss political norms. We had problems with international law and applicability of international law. The other questions, We've, we found very easily common ground and common understanding. So yes, I see role for the United Nations. And I, I very much hope that the roadmap will not remain on the shelves of uh, leaders or political leaders. And for example, yesterday, we had an excellent discussion with experts of cybersecurity organized by Germans, including German former EU presidency and German experts, IGF experts, like Wolfgang Kleinwachter. If you haven't talked to him, I very much suggest you include him into one of your next podcasts. And we discussed where to take further the UN Secretary General's roadmap, how to develop cooperation in cyber, in digital, how to develop uh, digital cooperation, what might be the future avenues, how to bring together different stakeholders. Because for digital cooperation and cybersecurity, all stakeholders are important. For centuries, governments and states were the only ones who were dealing with, with security. 
They were the ones dealing with nuclear security, chemical weapons, conventional weapons, but cyber is different. Private sector owns critical infra, private sector is providing online services, private sector has the brightest IT geeks that governments can never afford to work for government. So finally, we are in the stage where governments have to start cooperating with others. Also think tanks, also academia, also civil society. And uh, so I, 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 I hope that the roadmap will be just a push to further discussions, further elaborations, and that at some point we will come to a better organization of digital cooperation globally. And I just want to repeat that it has to be on all levels, global, regional, state to state. All levels are important. All levels have their nuances. Do you think this, that the digital roadmap, this panel, will have that impact, that there are steps that have happened since uh, since the panel, which was a couple of years ago now, and since the publishing of the report, which was last year, do you think that the, this specific report, this panel, has the traction, the visibility to push this international topic and international collaboration and cooperation further? Or maybe are we waiting for the OECD? Are we waiting for UNESCO? Is there something other than this? Does there need to be a big event, a big declaration for this to, to move forward internationally? Sometimes we need big declarations. Sometimes we need political declarations. And last year we celebrated the 75th anniversary of the United Nations, yeah? And for the first time, the declaration included digital cooperation and cybersecurity. But it's, it's a big thing. We should not underestimate it. So yes, there are also been other endeavors. And I think that one that should be mentioned is the Paris call, which happened before the high level panel, which was an initiative by French government and French president uh, Macron, and which was an important initiative for multi-stakeholderism. So I think that the world is ready, that we need something. And the fact that there are initiatives coming from different institutions and different organizations proves the fact that the world is ready. I see the UN central role. And I think that, for example, one of the, uh, one of the ways to follow is the IGF, Internet Governance Forum, which, which, uh, which exists, which is already there, which is multi-stakeholder. It has its minuses. It does not attract very much governments and it does not attract very much business people, but uh, it has connection to the United Nations. It's a good platform for discussions. I've been at IGFs in different position as Estonian foreign minister, as the chair of the global commission, and now as the member of the European parliament. And I've seen from different angles. And yes, I have to be open and frank that being there as a foreign minister, uh, I didn't get much of it. For me, it was, too, it was too big, it was too crowded, everything happening. So I participated in the high level segment and I left. As the member of parliamentarian, I followed the parliamentarian track, I went to other things. So yes, the, we can do IGF much better. We can streamline it better. We can bring it closer to political decision makers. We can, uh, we can improve the process, but it's there. So the high-level panel suggested IGF Plus as a new way of digital cooperation. And I see that there are discussions happening uh, all over where concrete proposals are being made how to make 
OIGF into OIGF Plus. I hope that the report will not remain and the roadmap will not remain only on the shelves. And I'm happy that I see the discussions happening, at least in the IGF forum. I think I share I share your frustration. <laughs> we need to be faster in making things more interdisciplinary and multi-stakeholder. And I think it's still going really slowly. And I think this is one of the areas that are really lagging behind. Obviously, the whole topic of digitalization and technology and cybersecurity is exploding all over the place and is becoming really, really prominent. But there still is missing this, this element of interdisciplinarity and multi-stakeholder approach. I really hope that this this but, but develops. I, but I'd like to add on a positive note. What I see differently, for example, from 2007, uh, when Estonia was first attacked. And, and you were, you were ambassador in Moscow at the time, right? I, yes, I was then Estonian ambassador to Russia. And what, what has changed since then, when we were talking about cybersecurity and we were having discussions within EU and NATO, there wasn't much interest. Today, everybody is discussing cybersecurity. We are talking about cybersecurity. So it has moved from the basements of IT departments into the CEO level, and it has become a political priority. And this is a big thing, because if it's a political priority, then it receives financial resources, human resources, and it's being dealt with. And I feel I see more and more politicians who have overcome the stereotypes I talked before and who are ready to accept that that's our new reality. We can't escape it and we should not escape it. It's part of our life. Even we don't write internet anymore with capital I, yeah? It's a sign. It's part of our life. So let's get along, let's get used to that and see how to fight the challenges. Yes, I, I, I agree. Let's talk a little bit uh, just for a few minutes about cybersecurity and this multi-stakeholder approach. Where do you see the positive and negative aspects of new technologies in supporting developing cyber defense capabilities, supporting the construction of information technology infrastructure? Do you see the, the entrance of new technologies of AI as more a positive thing rather than as a skeptical thing? I'd rather see it as a positive thing. AI is our future. But again, we should not jump into that without completely understanding what does it mean. For example, Uh, Last year, we finished the terrorist content online file in the European Parliament. We had negotiations with the Council and Commission, and we agreed on the text. And during the negotiations, it was a very strong position of the European Parliament that, for example, obligatory filters are not allowed. Because AI is not at the stage to have filters that do not discriminate, filters that can substitute the human brain and human work. So even if some companies like Facebook and Google are using automated filters, they need human oversight. Filters today can't do the job of humans. Automated cars. I think that 10 years ago, everybody thought that in 2020, we will have them in every city running around. We don't, because it takes time. So we have to be very realistic. At some point, yes, there will be lots of AI around us, more than today, but we have to be prepared and we have to be very clear and understand that it will be to the benefit of people. So the human-centeredness is the key. It has to be in the interests of human and it has to be brought back the decision-making 
the process has to be brought back to humans. Humans are responsible. AI will never be responsible. And, but, and how to do it in a way that it does not discriminate. We know that, for example, the first attempts of facial recognition, yeah? And we know how many difficulties there have been, especially with uh, identifying people who belong to minorities. We know the voice recognition. So there are first steps taken. And in the future, I'm sure that it will be part of our normal life, but not today. Today, we are far from that. And today, unfortunately, some governments are using it in a discriminatory way. It, we were speaking also to Kathy Mulligan, the podcast oh. that was published yesterday, and both her and, um, and Jovan, they both talked about the need for a new a renaissance, a sort of um, enlightenment in terms of the relationship between well, generally everything that's happening right now in, in, in the globalized world, but the relationship between technology, the social sciences, government, as well as general trust and values that, that are the bedrock of, of human beings. Jovan talked about the need of philosophy and the arts and more creativeness in entering all the debates that we're having today. Because in, in history, art and philosophy, even poetry, had a massive influence and a massive role in politics and in everyday discussions. And it seems that it's it's lacking and that it's something that's not happening right now. And that we are in, and probably we're in this all the time, but then we're in a chrono-narcissistic environment where we think right now is when everything is happening. Do you think it's possible to, what do you think this sort of renaissance might look like? And when can we expect it? When can we expect to start in a, in a, at least a similar level of understanding and then create the future that we want to see? I think that we are taking already the first steps. For example, if you talk about, I don't know, poets and IT geeks, they are already in the same room. That's something that wasn't there some 10, uh, 10 or 40, 50 years ago when internet was invented. Then it was just, it was a small island. But now it has become a global village. We're living in the same village. We're doing the same things, we see the same things. So I think that has changed. It's not perfect. And a couple of years ago, I had the chance to listen to Alex Tamos, who was the keynote speaker at Black Hat United States in Las Vegas. He was then chief cybersecurity officer at Facebook. And he said that Facebook has very much changed its thinking and is looking for diverse people different background, different education, different social experience, different everything. And I see that it's happening everywhere. It's not only white guys with ponytails sitting in the basements. We see not enough girls, but there are more and more girls. We see not only white anymore, but so the first steps in the right direction have been taken. As to the question of trust, it's a very difficult question. Because trust can be destroyed in a second. As I said, I'm watching the inauguration. And by the way, Joe Biden will be speaking very soon. So what we saw on the 6th of January in US, it was a shock. It could have, it could have destroyed democracy in some, other, in some other country. In the United States, it was just a shock. So like that, you can change something that was not even thinkable a day or a week or a year ago. So building trust takes time. Let's go back to what I said before. All the online services in Estonia, 
they are possible only thanks to the fact that we have trust in government. Why do we have such a huge trust in government? I do not have logical explanation. Maybe it's because we regained our independence just 30 years ago, and maybe we're still a bit, a bit naive, or maybe more seriously, the government so far has not deceived us. We have not seen government actions where we find that government is losing trust. We still have huge trust in government, but we need trust everywhere. It's not only government and people, it's government, private sector, private sector consumers, businesses, consumers, the trust on all the levels. It's like a spider web. It's difficult, it's complicated, but it has to be there and it can be so fragile. So again, coming also to one of the things we discussed before, will this COVID crisis build more trust or not? Today it's early to say, but I would argue that governments have all the tools, they have all the chances and all the opportunities to provide that they do care about people and that they do bring digital into their people's life with best intentions, doing it responsibly and respecting all the fundamental rights and human rights. So the chance is there. Whether governments will take advantage or not, let's talk in a year. Thank you so much. This has been so fascinating, inspiring. It, it's a real pleasure. Thank you for talking to me. And Michelle Obama and Barack Obama entered. Next week, you'll hear from Edson Prestes from Brazil on global robotics and AI development. Thank you for listening to The Last Week on Earth with the Global Arena Research Institute. Have a great week. Bye.